power and presence of the Lord accompanied and followed me. Many wept exceedingly and cried out under the word, like persons that were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And after I left them, God gave me to wrestle with him in my chamber in behalf of some dear friends. Then present and others that were absent from us, the Spirit of the Lord was upon them all. It made intercessions with groanings that cannot be uttered. Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes as usual and Cliff Sanders again for our series on the Great Awakening. These words taken from George Whitfield's journal in September of 1740 encompass almost everything there is to say about the Great Awakening, the mm-hmm. power of the Spirit, the intercession, the preaching, the presence of the Lord. So we started the series uh, talking about John Wesley and specifically how John Wesley's life is relevant today for Great Awakenings and revivals. And so, guys, I'm excited to talk about the second of our trio in the Great Awakening, George Woodfield. Me too. In fact, of the three, I probably have a little bit of a, a favor towards George Whitfield. I, I can't really tell you why, but something about his ministry really struck me. I think it's his preaching was so powerful. And I can just envision when Whitfield spoke words like that, when he preached in the midst of what I'd call a lifeless ritualistic religion, it had to have been like rain falling in the desert to be. Uh, that's a good image. And I think his ministry, as it swept across the British Empire and then the United States, he left an indelible mark on what one would call heart religion, right? to where it had transcended from just some academic understanding to a real heartfelt religion. And what a, what a wonderful thing to happen. Mm. If you haven't listened to the first episode on John Wesley, one of my takeaways from that cliff was when you talk about he for me, Mm. that personal aspect of the gospel is the story of the Great Awakening. And the reason I think it's a relevant thing for us today is you have to remember the Great Awakening wasn't an evangelistic crusade that began outside the church. It was something that began with church people, Mm -hmm. people that knew about God. Uh But they didn't have that knowledge of God, yeah. that he died for me. Mm-hmm. This is all personal. And what we'll talk about in week three is Edwards, the great theologian and chronicler of the Great Awakening, talks about the difference between a knowledge of something or uh, a sense of something, an understanding, mm-hmm. versus the felt experience mm-hmm. of something. So to say that honey is sweet versus to taste it in mm-hmm. your mouth, that's the difference between pre-Great Awakening and post-Great Awakening. Mm -hmm. And when we think about our world today, that's really what we need, Mm -hmm. is we need people to have an encounter with the living God. Not just, oh, this is, you know, what my parents believed or grandparents, or this is American Christianity. This is who God is. This is who I know him to be. This is who I've experienced him to be. And you could go throughout all of history and find very few people that had a bigger impact than George Woodfield. And I mean, I just want to spend a minute here talking about it because it's almost hard to believe mm. when, when you talk <laughs> about the numbers and right. the years that he yeah. put in and, and the popularity that he, he was able to see on both sides of the Atlantic, in England and in America, there have been very few people that have had the ministry that George Woodfield did. And, he, and you know, he, he did not serve in easy places. Bristol, which was a very... Uh, blue-collar, hard-working scrabble, some would call it, and he served there and worked there in terms of that field preaching. He didn't serve in some easy places. Mm. 
That's true. You know, Thomas Kidd wrote a book called America's Spiritual Founding Father. And I know George Whitfield, and that struck me when I saw it, because I really don't think about George Whitfield that way. I think about him as being British. Mm. Uh, but then you realize he was in America seven different times and had a huge impact here. But I really had never thought about this. This is what Kidd says about him. He said, Whitfield was the first internationally famous itinerant preacher and the first modern transatlantic celebrity <laughs> of any kind. And so for someone who's not particularly well-known in evangelical circles in America, he was uh, sort of a transatlantic phenomenon mm. in the 1700s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you think Billy Graham in America and across mm -hmm. the world, that's the kind of person we're talking about. I mean, everywhere he goes, when you read his journals, preached to 7,000, mm -hmm. then had dinner, then 10,000 gathered in a field, then was at the house and 700 people showed up for prayer. I mean, right. And it's not just about the numbers, it's that this wave was sweeping over the world and he was preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and seeing people come to this real encounter with Jesus Christ. It's, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around. And you know, one of the things that happened in England was he got people to support him. One of the great leaders of a lady, uh, Lady Huntington, who helped finance preaching houses and places. I mean, they were in the fields, but as things began to grow, mm. she began to support them and Wesley and Whitfield. But she was a strong supporter of George Whitfield, that uh, his ministry should increase. And in Bath, Bristol, and other places like that, she helped finance uh, places for him to serve and to be involved. So she was a great, great leader. And of course, that was pretty unusual in 18th century England uh, to have a lady who is, uh, uh, with the resources and abilities she had to support his ministry. Mm -hmm. let's, let's talk a little bit about England before Whitfield, because it's easy to look back and think of Christendom and you know the great, rich Christian history of England. This was not the high point yeah. of Christianity right. in England. In fact, right. this is one of the low points uh, in history. You had a church that was very ossified. You had bishops and uh, people in the Church of England that really didn't know God. They were more in it for the position and the prestige and the status. In fact, J.C. Ryle has this great book clip that she told me about, and he's describing the spiritual state of England, and, and he is talking about these Anglican bishops and how worldly they were. Mm. In fact, he, there's two things that, that popped out to me when I read this. The first one is, he says, in order to stop Whitfield's ministry, the bishops actually discussed among themselves whether the best thing might be to make him a bishop, because that, that would rein him <laughs> in from what he was doing. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, but this, this quote got me. He said, these Anglican bishops determined to know everything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When they did preach, their sermons were so unspeakably and indescribably bad that it, the only comfort is knowing that they were usually preached to empty pews. That's scathing. <laughs> So he, he points out all the good things that you think of in evangelical Christianity in England and in America were not there. The mission, yeah. mission movements had not arisen yet, Christian schools, training institutes, mm. a lot of vibrant churches, Christian literature, none of this existed. So in, in one sense, you had this dry ground that was ready for the rain to come, mm -hmm. as we spoke about earlier. But at the same time, this was swimming very upstream yeah. for someone like George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, in America, Jonathan Edwards, 
this was not an easy time. Just because it was in the past doesn't mean it was an easy time to be a Christian. Well, and you know, one of the great quotes in that section of that time is William Wilberforce, who had been converted under Wesley and Whitfield and all the working. He was so, um, well, he made, this, he, he made this observation, how could Christian England tolerate chattel slavery the way they did? And it was his lifelong goal to end it, and he finally did before, just before he died. But he made this observation when he said that England's heart had grown cold mm. because their heads were empty. And what they needed was a strong dose of the peculiar doctrines of Christianity. Mm. Wilberforce assessed that, that, that this is why the heart had grown cold in England, where there were more ale houses than there were anything else, where chattel slavery was accepted as a, just a, a, an acceptable kind of practice. And so here's Whitfield, who decides to address some of those issues. Where does he go? Bristol, mm. which was the actual largest port mm. in England at the time for the transfer of trans transatlantic slavery. So this the England was in a terrible condition, mm -hmm. and uh, he and others uh, helped change that in in a miraculous way. One of the effects of revival that we talked about is you do see that social change. You see great social upheavals happen. Of course, you see the American Revolution, which this, as we talked about, is kind of the revolution before the revolution, mm -hmm. the spiritual revolution. Mm -hmm. You see there's great spiritual revival before the Civil War in America. Um, there's great revivals in America before the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so there is this component of change over time that takes place. And uh, we take for granted some of those changes now, but this was a very dark mm. and very pagan time in England. And Whitfield uh, ha comes from humble beginnings. And some some it's interesting to look throughout history. Sometimes you see somebody who comes from the upper classes from the nobility, you can see this in the Bible, people like Isaiah, probably a relative of the king. You see Paul was in some elite mm. academic circles of the Pharisees. And then you see people who, if it weren't for God's intervention in their life, we would never have heard of them. George Whitfield is one of those people. Mm -hmm. Born in 1714, he was from a relatively poor family. They were innkeepers. And he and his mother and his siblings uh, had to work so diligently keeping their inn open that he had to drop out of school and just work with the family until um, he was convinced that going to Oxford would be the plan for him. And when he was a kid, he was very devout. He wanted to be a preacher. He had written sermons. He would sometimes stay up all night reading the Bible. But that flame almost went out when he left school and had to work until he goes to Oxford. And that's kind of the, one of the big turning points in his life. Well, part of his journey, as we know, was that Charles Wesley befriended him and invited him to breakfast one day, which in this highly structured culture, because of his, if you will, common upcoming or whatever, to be invited to eat breakfast with an upperclassman that had a higher social status, that was really breaking a lot of the rules. And Charles uh, really became the friend. And, 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 and some of the writings, readings I've read about Whitfield, he is forever thankful for that relationship. And that in, introduced him to some other serious followers of Jesus, uh, Charles, uh, other friends that, uh, it's my understanding, Whitfield made this statement that uh, 
Charles had put a book in his hands called The Life of God in the Soul of Man by Henry Scorgall. And he made the statement that he had never known religion before he read that book. Mm -hmm. And so Oxford really was the turning point. And those friendships continued throughout his life. Yeah, in fact, uh, I remember reading that in 1738, when uh, Whitfield set sail for America, for his first trip to America, it was Charles that saw him off. Mm. And he wrote to his brother, John, he said, this this man is one on whom God has truly poured out his spirit. Yeah. And of course, he was going as a representative of the Holy Club and the Methodists to yeah. uh, go to uh, America. And so that relationship, I know it didn't always stay, uh, it was always personally mm -hmm. close, didn't always stay theologically right. close with the Wesleys. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is how they came out of the mm -hmm. same soil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the lessons from Whitfield's early life is just the power of friends and mentors. Mm -hmm. It seems like sometimes in Christian history, you see people that just all of a sudden emerge fully formed. Like right. 100 years later, Charles Spurgeon, he's a 16-year-old <laughs> phenomenal preacher, and he stays that way for his whole life. But Whitfield was really different. He was constantly learning from people. He was being encouraged by people. He was building these networks of people wherever he went. And, and later in his life, he he talks about when he's in America listening to Gilbert Tennant preach and what an effect his preaching had on him. Here's one of the mm. greatest preachers of Christian history, and mm. he's talking about how great somebody else's sermons were. He, he writes in his journal that he convinced me more and more that we can preach the gospel of Christ no further than we have experienced the power of it in our own hearts. I found out what a baby and a novice I was in the things of God. <laughs> it's a very profound thing for somebody like Whitfield wow. to say, but it, it shows what he owed to these relationships that he had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about Tim Keller before, and I just saw a parallel here as I was thinking about this. In the biography of Keller, you realize that, and I was reading it, I didn't realize, oh, he was at this university with this person. And all of a sudden you realize there were connectedness amongst several people who 20 years later would all be publishing and all mm -hmm. be doing that. And I wondered if an awakening or a revival builds itself out of some of these relationships, because here we are talking about how he, against the odds, really got connected mm -hmm. to John and Charles Wesley, got connected to the Methodist groups mm -hmm. and the Holy Club, and some other names will come out later. But it's almost like God put this critical mass of people together and then launches mm. the awakening. I wonder if that's true for every revival. I, I think that's a great observation from the standpoint that it's not just a superstar. I mean, Whitfield right. was a superstar, but he had been formed, like you said, Cole, with these relationships and these experiences that that just formed him uh, and continued to form. He didn't get then rogue and just by himself. Right. Even though he and Wesley had some deep, theological differences, they really relied on one another in their work together, especially in Bristol and Kingswood. And I, I, that's, I think that's a great observation that, you know, one person has said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Mm -hmm. Well, he had some credible and continued to have incredible friends. Well, and, and on that point, he, he had frenemies. I mean, he, <laughs> he and John Wesley were rivals in their doctrinal systems, yes. not in the cause of the gospel, but in their doctrinal systems, in their opinions. They're both mm -hmm. very um, well-spoken. They're mm -hmm. both kind of type A personalities to take what they believe and run with it. But I think maybe a couple of episodes ago, I don't know if you remember this quote that somebody asked 
George Whitfield if they would see John Wesley in heaven. Mm. And, uh, you know, just that somebody would ask that question is kind of eye-opening. But that just tells you how deep some of the mm-hmm. riffs were theologically. Yeah. And Whitfield goes, oh, no, we won't, we won't see him. He'll be so close to the throne. Yeah. He'll be so far in the back. Yeah. And it just gives you a sense of even in his dispute mm-hmm. with someone as great as John Wesley, the humility of understanding that at yeah. the end of the day, they're, they're going for the same cause. Yeah. And I, I think that's an interesting lesson for somebody as popular mm-hmm. and as famous as he is. That mm-hmm. he, he showed a lot of deference in his life. He had a true mm-hmm. humility in his life, which we'll talk about later, I think, maybe why that is in his life. But celebrity, yes, in the sense mm-hmm. that he was well-known. Influential, yes but very humble, yeah. very tied in with other people. It's a great takeaway from his life. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's ordained at 22, begins his ministry, preaches his first sermon in Gloucester, and then begins preaching in London, faces a lot of pushback. And it's interesting now to think about why he got a lot of pushback. It was mostly because of what he was preaching about regeneration. Mm-hmm. And this was very offensive to people mm-hmm. that were in this kind of lackadaisical church inertia of, um, you see this in America in Jonathan Edwards' church, which we'll talk about on the next episode, that his major problems came from people who wanted to be considered Christians, Mm -hmm. but who would not make a confession of faith. Right. And if you start really preaching regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the kind of nominal Christian environment is going to really heat up. And and, And Whitfield faced that. And so because of that and other things, he decides to go to America. And, and that, as you said earlier, he does this seven times in his life, which at this point wasn't, you know, it was not a quick American airline trip. flight. <laughs> not an easy trip. <laughs> months of travel. So he, he gets invited by the Wesleys to come and to take leadership of this orphanage in Georgia, mm-hmm. which is funny when you read his journals, he, every time he preaches, oh, I, and, I, and I got 40 pounds for the orphans in yeah. Georgia. I mean, this was his constant fixation after this, but it was the thing that got him to America that in, in the big scheme of things was a very small operation compared to what he ended up doing. But this was the ticket to get him to America. Mm-hmm. Come, take leadership in this orphanage, preach in Georgia, and then really the entire American seaport on the East Coast started to mm-hmm. come alive. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, Ben Franklin is active at this time, and Ben Franklin urged him to preach to the aristocracy as well in America the landed gentry, if you will, uh, because he felt like if he could uh, elevate their faith, then that would have an influence on everybody else. And while Franklin himself, there are a lot of questions about how committed he was, but he did say this about the aristocracy. He said, there are numbers who perhaps fear less being in hell than being out of fashion. Mm. And so you you realize that what's going on in America at that time is also a little bit of a spiritual drought. Mm-hmm. Now, just skipping ahead, Whitfield died in, I believe, New Hampshire. Mm. He was in America when he died in 1770. And now we look at the Declaration of Independence, 1776, and you see this very spiritual, God-oriented language. I think that's a little bit of a reflection of what of the fruit of Whitfield's mm-hmm. work through the 1700s yeah. is he really was in some sense responsible for the spiritual state of the founding fathers. Well, and you think about that time, Whitfield's coming to America and doing incredible work. And then Wesley sends Thomas Cook and Francis Asbury. Mm. And so you've got two English mm. 
if you will, oriented kind of ministries that are now sweeping the United States and bringing revival here uh, when Cook mm-hmm. and Asbury, you know, they ride their horses all the way to Kentucky and the frontier. And so Whitfield and Wesley are working together again. Mm-hmm. You know, they work together in England. Now they're working together here. So they they are just God's instruments at that time, I guess, and they're they're able to to find their lane and work together. I, I'm just fascinated by it that how God used them both on both continents. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, we think when I when I think about Great Awakening, I think about the Wesleys, I think about Whitfield. I think about they got out of the churches, mm-hmm. the kind of the lifeless ritualistic services, and to the common person, to the coal miners and the field workers and that kind of thing. But actually, that, I believe, the first time, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Cliff, but I think after that first visit to America, when Whitfield went back, maybe 1739, uh, something caused him to to not preach in the churches. I think maybe he was being uh, kept out of the churches, and he decided he'd go into the fields. And then was it him that recruited John Wesley to do yes. the mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, you know, he had, again... There was this strong parish kind of thing. If you don't have a parish, yep. then you don't have a place to preach. Well, Whitfield saw the need and began to preach, and uh, he, and then you know people are responding, and the and the area pastors are just out out of their minds over it. He's going to go back to America, so he calls John Wesley to say, "I need somebody to keep this going," mm-hmm. and some have said somebody to organize it because. Hundreds of people are responding. And so, yeah, when he comes back and he and Wesley meet or talk about this, he he encourages Wesley to come. And, of course, last time we talked about, you know, how Wesley resisted, resisted, resisted the idea of field preaching back to that kind of proper English mm. gentry mentality. But, yeah, so he, he, he recruits him because he's got to go back to the United States again to do another preaching tour. Well, and that highlights the kind of organically, so you get all these people being converted, but they're being converted in the fields and on the work sites, and there's no, quote, church structure mm-hmm. to do anything with them. Right. And so this is where uh, Whitfield's genius was in preaching this, and Wesley, while well, he was also an, an outstanding preacher, but he kind of came in and organized oh, yeah. because the church wasn't willing or able to organize. Yeah these people coming to Christ. Well, I'd, I was doing a blog the other day about this idea that, that you know, not, I don't want to mean it crass here, but, you know, Wesley tried to out-organize the devil. You know, he, he decided, and there is a long history in England or English uh, religi- religious practice of called societies. There was a society for the propagation of the gospel. There was the society for the uh, renewal of manners, which uh, Wilberforce was a part of. And so Wesley's idea was to take that kind of framework of a society that would be in Bristol or London or Glasgow or wherever, and then organize that group to be a society, then to break that down into a class and then down to a band. Mm-hmm. And so Wesley did. He, we used to call that when I was in school called conserving the fruit of evangelism that there was that need because they weren't going to get that going back into the church. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to get that in the in the Anglican Church of this kind of nurturing. It's interesting to think about what they were doing in that context as taking 
the gospel, the same gospel mm-hmm. that the Puritans were preaching and that the mm-hmm. Reformers were preaching, yeah. but using totally different methods. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in fact, unacceptable methods to some of the established church people yes. to reach people that they otherwise couldn't reach. I, I really think that Whitfield's, the impetus for Whitfield taking the gospel into the fields was that's where the people were that weren't going to be mm-hmm. reached. Right. And he has this passion to go and preach the gospel to people that need to hear it. Mm-hmm. And just to give you a sense of what this was like, there's one of his early opportunities to preach in America is in this coal mining town. Hmm. And he begins preaching and he says, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of freedom at first, which we'll come back to this. The way he describes his preaching is really interesting. But he looks out and he sees white troughs beginning to form on the coal miners' faces. Mm-hmm. He realizes that they're weeping mm-hmm. and it's washing the soot yeah. off their faces. And he can see that the word is having its impact. Yeah. And so he begins to preach even more with more freedom and more fervor. And he sees hundreds of people in that town converted. Yeah. And then, you know, you have to have, if, if that's your new missionary strategy, your new evangelistic strategy, then the outcome is you've got all these people that then need to be discipled. And so they create, you know, a way to do that. And so there's an enduring lesson on both sides of this. One, that we do need to think innovatively about how to reach people that nobody else is reaching. And then secondly, that you have to do that every time you want to see something new happen. So in, right. in Keller's Center Church, he talks about everybody always has the tendency to try to redo the last revival. Mm-hmm. You know, in, yeah. in history, this is always you, you fight the last war. Same weapons, mm-hmm. same strategies, all of mm-hmm. that, but it, it wasn't the field preaching, yeah. you know, or like it wasn't the tent revivals. Sorry. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't the mode. It was the message. Yeah. And the message is going to stay the same and the mode is going to change. So you, you can have the delivery mechanism, which is going to be different and you need to innovate and you need to reach people in a way that maybe people haven't done before, but you don't t- change the message. Right. The gospel that you'll hear in Billy Graham and in George Whitfield and in Martin Luther and in Augustine and whoever else, mm-hmm. it's the same gospel. Really different methods yeah. and means. And every revival has those qualities. Yeah. Convincing something new, try to reach people, and then the next one doesn't look anything like mm-hmm. that. And it's a, yeah. it's a very human temptation to try to go back nostalgically to just do what worked last time. Yeah. But that is to forget that it's really the message, mm-hmm. not the method. Yeah, I agree with that. If you look at a secular example, we would all gr- agree that uh, the internet and then smartphone access, if you just stop and think for a minute, it's, there's no doubt that has revolutionized our society. So that change in the medium, the access to information, the way we can access one another, social media, et cetera, that has been a revolutionary medium. It's a medium, though, without any content without mm-hmm. any principle. And consequently, we look around and we say, wow, this medium is very powerful, but look at the devastation it has wrought in loneliness and depression and other things. And I, so I really take to heart what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Whatever means we may use may be powerful, but if the means are the power of what you're doing, if mm-hmm. it's your performance, if it's whatever, that is going to lead to bad results. It's fundamentally the power of the gospel message and the regeneration of lives. And so we just need to keep the main thing the main thing and not be afraid then to use other media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think too, one of the things we're hitting on around here, at least in my mind and my heart, is that 
here are two men. We talked about Wesley Whitfield. We'll talk about Edwards. Here are two people that started with a real sense of need mm-hmm. for God. Mm-hmm. This was not an amateurish kind of, well, it might help me out live my better life or to solve a problem that I have over here with my right. career. They had a real sense, maybe this is an old way of saying it, but they had a real sense of being under the conviction and judgment of God. When they heard the gospel and understood it, you know, well, you talk a lot about that, how that occurs through the Spirit, but there was a there was a change of heart, an enlivening of their heart, that the good news was something they couldn't stop talking about. So I wonder at times if if people nowadays don't have a deep enough sense of need for God mm-hmm. that the gospel or church is it's nice to do and it helps you live your better life and those kind of things. But there really isn't any real deep fundamental sense in which I stand before God right. or need to be in right relationship with him. You know, I Wesley and Whitfield both attributed the idea that they were both men that said, I'm a man on fire. Come and watch me burn. You know, there was mm-hmm. something that had gotten a hold of them. And I, I long for that in my own life at times even more. But I just wonder in our culture, in our world, that people are almost anesthetized to, to their need for God. And mm-hmm. if there can be that sense of, wait a minute, this is, this is being in right relationship with God, not just trying to fix your career or your, right. your kids or something like that, that these guys... I mean, they, you read their lives, and there was a real depth of need they sensed, and the gospel came, became really good. Mm-hmm. It's, it goes back, one of the most profound takeaways for me out of this whole thing is what you were talking about, Cole, when Whitfield heard Tennant preach, and that mm-hmm. idea, I'll paraphrase it, that you can't preach any more powerfully, you can't take people anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. your technique could be great but you have no more power than what you've experienced mm-hmm. of the power of God in your life. And I think that's a takeaway for all of us mm-hmm. as well, is that we uh, revival can't start because we have good techniques and great uh, light shows and, and mm-hmm. great use of social media. Well, all those things are useful. Yeah. We can't take anybody further than we have experienced it. And that is mm-hmm. my takeaway from both Wesley yeah. and Whitfield, is they had a, a very personal yeah. uh knowledge, firsthand knowledge of their need and the power of the gospel in their lives. And I think that's what made them so powerful, mm-hmm. even beyond their technique yeah. in the pulpit. Right. There was real, it was, there, were, there was a reality to the new life they were experiencing that they had never known before. And you're, again, they're brought up Anglican. They've been in church. They've, they've been religious, mm-hmm. but man, they had an encounter with God. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what changed each of these lives, and I think that's what leads them to have a ministry where they see this mm-hmm. happen. Is they right. they had experienced it, they understand it, and they preach from that. Yeah, and boy, Whitfield did preach. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the numbers of his life, he so he's going back and forth. He's in Scotland, he's in Wales, he's in England, he's in America. He's active in ministry for about thirty-four years. Preaches eighteen thousand times which is more than 10 times a week, more than 10 times a week for 34 years. 
He, on Sundays, would do Sunday morning service and then prayers, three sermons later, pastoral care. He'd Indeed. teach every day of the week. I mean, he was a maniac yeah. <laughs> going and preaching these sermons, but it was because something in him was compelling him yeah. to mm-hmm. preach these sermons. That doesn't leave a lot of time for sermon prep. Yeah. This was yeah. not just well-crafted messages. Right. These were messages from the heart. Yeah. And that, that kind of brings me to... At the end of his life, he dies in 1770, as we mentioned. Kind of suddenly, he's been mm-hmm. kind of sick, but kind of suddenly dies. He preaches the last sermon before he dies the night before on 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether mm-hmm. you are in the faith, which mm-hmm. is just a great Whitfield text preach. What do you think it was that made Whitfield so unique, so special? Mm-hmm. What, what was it mm-hmm. in him as a preacher, as a person in the time period that he lived? that made him so impactful. So like I said, this isn't just somebody that had a, a great ministry and very faithful. I mean, there's a lot of those throughout history. There are very few Whitfields and Wesleys and Edwards. What was it? What, what made him so unique? Well, I'll start with the least spiritual thing, uh, and there are more, but if you think about it, when you were reading excerpts from his journal, he literally, I mean, we stop and think about megachurches and you think about, oh, there's, you know, 10,000 people, 20,000 people. He really would just write matter-of-factly, you know, preach today to 20,000 people mm-hmm. and then 7,000 tomorrow. And it was raining, so we only had 10,000. I mean, yeah. but it's just to- matter-of-fact to him. But stop and think about this for a minute. He's preaching in a field. How in the world can you hear a guy? 20,000 people can hear him. And so I was reading about Benjamin Franklin when he was in America. Same thing happened. He's just preaching. In fact, when he went to Scotland, they had to quit announcing when and where he didn't preach because they got too many people. Mm. So he comes to America, and Franklin does a little experiment. There's people crowded around, shoulder to shoulder, all around him. And Franklin decides he's going to walk away and see, how far can I go and still hear him? So he goes 500 feet away. He said, back toward his office, he said, when I got about 500 feet away, I could no longer make out what he was saying. That's unbelievable. Mm, He said, and then I turned around and looked, and I thought, how many people could get within the sound of my voice? And he asked, this is Benjamin Franklin, Mm. estimating about 50,000 people could probably hear him. Mm. And I, so this is not a very spiritual thing, but God clearly gifted him with a voice. Yeah. Right. You bet. Right. You bet. That's kind of a funny thing, because if you read Spurgeon's lectures to my students, Mm -hmm. he talks about this. Uh He says, uh, shallow-chested men (laughs) should not be preachers. You got to have a voice. (laughs) Got to have. This is before microphones and everything. (laughs) Right. There, there, there are some just logistical things that you think about with people like this that there were keys. His voice. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just loud. You hear people talk about listening to him preach. His voice was apparently so melodic and wonderful to mm-hmm. listen to, that that had a big deal. I think somebody said he could make people cry just by pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> and that is something that in an oral culture, right. that, that makes a big difference. Yeah. Think about his physical constitution. Yeah. That's another thing. I think about this with the Apostle Paul. Of course, John Wesley is the perfect mm-hmm. example of this. Right. He, when you read his journals, he, he is coming home at night, collapsing, throwing up, can't sleep. I mean, he is in physical agony, and he'll write things like, but was able to get some sleep, and the Lord sustained me in the morning, mm-hmm. gathered at Gloucester, preached to 10,000. Yes. I mean, it's the same thing over and over again. Right. His physical constitution, 
the the fact that he didn't die on any of these voyages across the Atlantic right. is a big deal. There are certain providences of God that don't look all that providential. They look more happenstance. Well, he was lucky he didn't. He went on the wrong ship at the wrong time. <laughs> He's lucky he had a loud voice. All of these things God right. used yeah. to contribute to his ministry. Yeah. But you know, you'd have to say, Cliff, I don't know, moving up the spiritual chain a little bit, mm-hmm. what you just said was what he was doing wasn't easy. It wasn't yeah. like uh, you you go to a concert and you see a performer and they've got all these people in the green room and they're ushered out and taken care of and they go out and they do their thing and off they go, get in the limo, et cetera. And that's amazing. Their talent is great. But he did everything he did through great difficulties yeah. and suffering. And so I don't, you said it's his constitution and I agree with that. It's also some burning fire in him yeah. that was able to overcome those. Yeah. Well, you know, when I read he and many others, uh, of that era, there's a, they, they would often use the, the idea of lively faith, not mm-hmm. just faith, but lively, that it had been ignited. Something, you know, whether this is common or whether it's something God uniquely did for him, uh, there was a encounter, there w- and, and it, what makes me wonder, how did he even sustain that? with the pace he kept. Right. But there was an encounter with God. There was a um there was a sense in which he had had an experience. Wesley said that when he preached he lived by preaching. So something's going on here that God has I think uniquely picked these men. Uh, when Wesley said I I live by pre-, I think I think Whitfield lived by preaching. Something was happening uniquely which Again, I don't know how to identify it, but in my way of thinking about it, I would say to students uh, when I worked at the university about what we all needed, I'd say is we need a real encounter with a real Jesus. We need a real encounter with a real Jesus. And whatever, somehow that happened, that, that happened to George Whitfield. And I, I go back to that book of that I've read time after time. When I read it, it puts me on my knees. The life of God and the soul of man. Scorgall's work. I mean, that that work by itself will just put you on your knees. And Whitfield said, this is the one that brought me to Christ. So it has to be something here that that they're experiencing, that they've known. And again, I would think that that's available to all of us. These guys really... The little bit sidebar, but these guys make me question all the time. Okay, Cliff, how can you, how can you be uh, used by God? How can you be involved in the work of God uh, with a with a culture that is as messed up as England was, that is as secularized as England was? So they're they're disturbing to me, both of them, and not just Westland Woodpit, Cynic, Howell, Roland, then. All these guys, they 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 all make me nervous. That that's the truth, and and you see this maybe most strikingly in his prayer life. He's a famous preacher, yeah, but his prayer life it has an intensity right. to it. Mm-hmm. There's a dependence. There's an encounter in his prayer life. Yeah, if you read Jack Miller's book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, mm-hmm. he looks at the history of revivals and renewals and talks about that that in every revival you'll find prevailing prayer mm. preceding it. Mm. People that mm. feel 
that God is calling them especially to pray mm-hmm. sacrificially for what mm-hmm. he might do. And then you see revival happen. So you get these groups of people that are praying, not even knowing exactly what they're asking God to do other than yeah. to bring revival and renewal. And that's the way that God almost um, whets the spiritual appetite mm-hmm. for what's going to come. And that, that certainly happened in America with Whitfield is these people were already praying. Revival was already starting regionally. These pastors in these churches were preaching in ways that were really different than they had before. Mm-hmm. And then Whitfield gets there and it just catches fire. And so that that's one of the components. Whitfield was a man of tremendous prayer. Yeah. I Well, I, you know, I said before that, uh, you know, I think that in America, we think that when we pray, we're not doing anything. And, you know, I, it, it makes me question all the time to say, you know, is, are, do, have we just relegated prayer to some little thing here? Or is it that real sense of which I, I think of Paul uh, when he says that, isn't it Epaphroditus? He is agonizing, agonizum, yeah. he's agonizing for you in prayer. And I think, well, what was the last time that happened with me? Right. <laughs> you know, this this sense of bearing and and praying and believing. And so I that there has has to be some of that. Because mm-hmm. Woodfield, as you said accurately, is a man of prayer. And 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 tied with that, there's no way to explain his ministry without the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Right. He he was capable of doing some things that we would all point to and say, Well, that that's gonna work. That that's gonna <laughs> preach. That's really uh-huh. good. But nobody is capable of doing what he was able to do without the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right. And I'll go back to this point we mentioned earlier. When you read him talking about his preaching, this becomes very evident. Mm. So I, I wrote down a couple of quotes. He's, he says at one point, I began to preach at first, not with much freedom, mm-hmm. but at last the word ran and melted many down. <laughs> or he says, after I'd begun... The Spirit of the Lord gave me freedom till at last he came down like a mighty rushing wind and carried all before it. Mm-hmm. Let's get this sense that he's preaching for a while, getting loosened up. Yeah. <laughs> is picture in a bolt, he's able to really start to <laughs> preach after he's done this for a little bit. But, there, but there's a power of the Spirit that he was conscious of mm-hmm. while he was preaching. Yeah. And he'll say, you know, preach to 6,000 without much result. Mm-hmm. The Spirit wasn't there. Yeah, And then you'll have him even doing private devotions in homes of families that are hosting him. Hmm. And he'll say, and as, as I prayed and as we talked, the Spirit came hmm. and people groaned and yeah. wept over what God was doing. This is just like in a family home. Because right. to him, it didn't matter. It didn't really matter if it was the Spirit showing up in the field with 20,000 people or the Spirit showing up when somebody comes over to where he's staying afterwards and needs prayer mm. into the wee hours of the morning. He wants to see the Spirit yeah. do the Spirit's work. And, yeah. and, and he, maybe, maybe more than um, some of the others in the Great Awakening, it is a great example of a living picture of walking by the Spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is somebody we would consider today very charismatic in the sense that he knew when he preached that it would be a display of the Spirit and of power yeah. in his preaching. It's very dramatic. He would weep. He would mm-hmm. yell. He would do all these things, but it was all because the Spirit was working through him. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can explain his ministry without that. Uh, I agree. You know, there's a sense in which we think, and this is a takeaway for me, is that when an awakening comes, God moves. That's true. 
through his spirit, and that's certainly true, but that he anoints a particular person, and Mm -hmm. that is the reason for the awakening. Well, there's no doubt that there's some truth in that, but I have to stop for a minute and ask myself this. Is it possible that any one of us who had had the real encounter with the real Christ Mm. and ignited the Spirit within us, Mm. can you imagine what God could do with each of us? And so I'm not saying that each of us could be a Whitfield. Mm. That's in God's choosing and God's orchestrating. But let's not stop there and say, well, God, please raise up a George Whitfield. Mm. It's like, God, ignite the Spirit in me, because I think that's what God can use. Mm. He may also bring us a Wesley or a Whitfield Mm. for our time. Mm. But imagine what he can do if each of us have that. So I take a less of a God, I want you to act, but it's like, you know, perhaps I should mm-hmm. start with my own, uh, make me like George Whitfield, having that learning and that encounter. Right. Yeah, there's a, a, a quote here that I think is a great summary of his impact and, and the impact that we take from him for our own life and mm-hmm. our own world. He's praying with this group of clergy, and afterwards, one of these ministers writes down I have been a scholar and have preached the doctrines of grace for a long time. But until then, I believe I had never felt the power of them in my own soul. Mm. That's the outcome. That, right. that is renewal. Not that we would become Whitfields, like you said, mm-hmm. right. but that we would have the encounter, that we would live from that encounter, mm-hmm. right. that other people would feel them to be true in their own yeah. soul. And, that, you know, that is that the mysterious work of the Spirit, to take what one might know and what might speak and understand and make it substantively real. Right. And, and I think, again, we've talked about this, that it's not technique. It's not, we do the best we can. You know, when I teach, I always pray, I want to be creative in presentation, but I want to be faithful to the text. But, but this understanding of the spirits, making it real to a person's life and soul, that's a, I don't know that we have thought through at times how dependent we are on God's Spirit. Like you said, Terry, to, to, what do you want to do with me? How, how do you want me to be participating in this? Because uh, these leaders, others, uh, there was that real sense of, I've preached it, I've talked about it, I've said it, but man, it's real now. <laughs> and... Uh, that, that, that seems to be part of the genius of it. Well, as, a, as a cliffhanger for the third episode, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a book on the Puritans. Mm-hmm. He writes about Whitfield. He writes about uh, many of these famous people, but he includes Jonathan Edwards in the end. Oh, yeah. And he talks about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards, and he says, Edwards, maybe more than anyone else knew, that you didn't just need to preach so that things were clear or even that things were true, but that these words of God live. Yeah. It's the goal of preaching. Yeah. We'll talk about him the next time on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.